teachings click for you somewhere deep in your heart and mind, then you really have the view. Whatever difficulties you face, you will find you have some kind of serenity, stability, and understanding, and an internal mechanism. You can call it an inner transformer that works for you to protect you from falling prey to wrong views. In that view, you will have discovered a wisdom guide, a wisdom guide of your own, always on hand to advise you, support you, and remind you of the truth. Sure, confusion will still arise, that's only natural, but this time and from now on with a crucial difference. No longer will you focus on it in a blinded and obsessive way, but you will look on it with humor, perspective, and compassion. That's from a teacher named Sogyal Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And my name is Mark Winwood, the host here of The Elegant Mind, brought to you on weekend mornings from 10 to 11 on Valley 104.9 FM radio serving the lower Snoqualmie Valley, including Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge. Thank you for joining us. We have lots to talk about today, different ideas and different topics. It's been a busy week for me, and I'd like to relate some of, the, some of my experiences in the community, in our community, some questions that I've heard, some answers that I've tried to come up with to help provide a stepping stone of understanding, a further perspective, perhaps, for people who ever asked the question, whoever overheard the conversation, for people to form their own conclusions, cultivate their own understandings, and then take whatever it is that they've come to see and use it, use it to some type of benefit, some kind of wholesome use in their life. So this past week I was having a discussion with a friend who, like me, is a, uh, a senior citizen, I guess is a nice way to say it. And we were talking about my, my practices and the things that I'm doing in the community and the spiritualism of it all, for lack of a better better word, I guess spiritual spiritual fits what we're doing here with uh, this radio broadcast, Elegant Mind. And uh, he asked me, is, is it true that, that aging can be a spiritual practice, that there's something about the aging process that brings along with it a spirituality? And uh, I remember remember a quote that I heard from Woody Allen, you know, Woody Allen, the uh, comedian, the filmmaker, New York City. And I remember he was asked about aging and he said, well, you know, I'm really, I'm against aging. I, I don't think it has anything to recommend about it. He said, you don't gain any wisdom as the years go by. You fall apart. That's what happens. You try to put a nice polish on it, a nice varnish on it, and you say, well, you know, you mellow and you come to accept things the way they are, but I would trade all of my aging to be 35 years old again. Something like that was, was what Woody responded, and 
And, you know, I like Woody's films, and he's having some problems now, as you probably know. Um, but uh, his films, uh, some of his films were brilliant, and, and he's, uh, you know, he's a funny man. But I think there's a, uh, a complex relationship between aging and spirituality. You know, there is the, the prevalent cultural view, the prevalent media view, and the private experience of aging. And we live in a youth culture. We live in a consumer-driven culture. And advertising, wherever you see it, wherever you encounter it, targets young people, period. But if you sit down, if you talk uh, honestly, candidly to older people, I think they have, uh, there's an intimation that there's something precious and there's something actually new about getting old something new about getting old. Many of us aren't quite sure what it is or how to get there. And I think if, you know, we were able to sit down with, with Woody Allen at this, at this point in his life, we, he'd probably agree with us, you know, beyond being the funny man. He'd probably agree with us. So, uh, yeah, there are certainly, there are indignities of aging. Our body, our body begins to hurt. Our body begins to fall apart. I don't know if, if you can hear this on this broadcast, but I have dentures. I need to wear dentures because of aging that took place in my mouth. And it's difficult. It's, and it's an indignity at times to not be able to speak as clearly as I would like to. And sometimes, sometimes my dentures click. <laughs> at the worst possible at the worst possible moments but you know so yeah there there are some some indignities and uh, you know would i would i would i trade my life now for the way my you know to be 35 years old again well you know my body yeah maybe to have my 35 year old body my you know 30 years ago i'm 66 uh yeah i guess i guess anybody would but would I trade my mind? I don't think anybody. Uh, would you? Would you trade your mind to have your mind at 35 or 25, whatever? Pick a pick an age, random age. It doesn't matter. Um, I think it's clear that I know more now than I did then. I suspect. I'd like to think. I guess that I'm a deeper person. I have a deeper appreciation of other people. I've 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 lived a life, a, a full life, and that's how that's how I look at it. You know, there's a there's a whole adventure waiting waiting to open up for people who are aging, but you have to get through that. Boy, I wish I were younger phase in order to really embrace and engage in that. You know, there's a story I think of. I have some, some friends who uh, play rock and roll music down in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's just the nature of the music they play that sometimes it gets really kind of loud. And these guys are, you know, they're, they're our age. They're my age. And it wasn't all that long ago that they were playing a concert, and, you know, and when the concert was over, they were pretty deaf, you know, because of all the the amps and the speakers that they're so close to playing this loud music. And one of the, uh, one of the people in the, in the crowd uh, came up to the, to the band as they, uh, as they were breaking down their instruments. And this guy said, boy, you guys are great. You guys are raging. You're just raging. You're still raging. And the, uh, the drummer looked and said, 
huh? Aging? We're aging? So, you know, it's on our mind and, and we hear things and, and we're very aware of this fact that, that, uh, that we're, we're raging, aging, take your pick, probably both. Certainly the aging part, hopefully the raging part as well. But, you know, there, there comes a point in our, in our life and, you know, the, the, the Tibetan teachings, the Tibetan Buddhist teachings on impermanence ring so true and they're so relevant to us. They're so relevant. They, they ring true. You know, there, there, comes a, there comes a point in your life where, you know, whether it's early or late, and, you know, it hits you that you and everybody else that you that you know, that you care about, that you love are just not going to be here eventually, you know. And now what? What do we do with that? And, you know, that's the doorway, perhaps the doorway to to beginning to rage while you age, perhaps. And when when you're there, when you're at that doorway, things kind of, you know, they change. There's a there's a different scent. There's a different color about everything in your life. And, and uh, everything becomes more precious and more serious. And, and, you know, and you can maybe that's where you have the idea that, gee, you know, I like to kind of go back to being 20 years old. I didn't have to think about this stuff. But you're there. You're at that doorway. You're at that, at that place. And really, hopefully, you see, well, this is an opportunity, and you walk through, or, or do you, you know, drink a beer and go out and play golf, or whatever uh, you might be doing at that point in your life to take your mind, to take your mind away from it. You know, I, I don't know how, how long I'm going to live, but, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of folks who are listening to this who at some point in their life are going to be are going to live to be 85 years old, 80, 85, 90 years old. And maybe the question is, okay, I've got, I've got time left and, and maybe a lot of time left. So what am I going to do? Am I going to uh, just go play golf, you know, uh, sit by the pool? Is that what I'm going to do? And uh, so, you know, it's, we talk about spirituality, the spirituality of aging, and maybe the point is just this simple, just this simple, that spiritual practice begins with the, uh, with this realistic, this this visceral insight that everything is going to vanish, including me. Everything is going to vanish, including me. So is it true that aging is a spiritual practice, a spiritual endeavor? It sure can be. It sure can be. And hopefully it will be for, uh, uh, for you. You know, to come back to the, to the notion of impermanence, another way of saying impermanence is that everything changes. And we know this. We know this to be true. Everything changes. Nothing stays the same. Everything that comes together matures and decays and falls apart. We know that. But usually we, we just know that kind of intellectually. Like, yeah, sure, everything, everything falls apart. And where, where's my coffee? Where's my, where's my, uh, where are my comfortable slippers? Everything falls apart. We just know it intellectually. And part of spiritual practice is to... Take what we know intellectually and really know it, you know, experientially know it. Intellectually into experientially. 
know it. And Buddhism, aging in Buddhism, they really kind of, they run a parallel course. Buddhist ideas and aging run a parallel course because what happens is you go from, well, everything changes to everything disappears. Everything changes, becomes everything disappears, which is a whole lot more serious. It's a whole lot more serious when it's you and your loved ones and everything in your life everything disappears and and uh you know it's it's that's that's where the uh, i guess you know kind of where the rubber meets the road use a trite phrase but you know it's uh, it's this is all experiential and 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 our our uh, our teachings or the stories of of siddhartha illuminate this this idea siddhartha was a was a prince and and he walked out of his palace and he actually saw old people who he was being sheltered from. His father didn't want him seeing that, didn't want him feeling any kind of discontent, any kind of spiritual discontent at all. So he saw some old people and he really saw it. You know, he really saw it's like, holy cow, I'm going to be that way too one day. All my privilege, all my princely privileges are not going to help me. I'm going to be that way too. And that was his starting point, aging, the idea of aging. That was his starting point. And I think that's true for anybody, for anybody, for everybody. If you're listening to this broadcast, is it true for you? Is it true for you? It's a universal story. We all walk out of the palace of, of our youth, our, our innocence. We all walk out of that palace. And at some point, we actually see what's going on. That's the Buddhist story. That's the Tibetan story. And that's our story as well. And, you know, perhaps this is one of the great benefits of a meditation practice. Meditation helps ground us in our experience at the moment. All these ideas of maybe I wish I had done that when I was younger, what's going to happen to me five years and uh, in five years and and etc. You know, sometimes people spend a lot of time thinking about that kind of stuff. And, and we think maybe a lot about what's happening or what's going to happen. And while you're meditating, you still have those thoughts. You don't escape anything when you're meditating. You just process things differently. So you still have those thoughts. But there's something else in the meditation that releases you from being bothered by it from being uh, afflicted, impacted by it. And uh, there's the, the Zen teacher, Suzuki Roshi. I know he, I guess famously, popularly, once said that we meditate to enjoy our old age. <laughs> we meditate to enjoy our old age. You know, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward response to personal experience. And, you know, I think he said that when he was quite old. I think he was old, he was ill. And I think he might have actually, through his meditation, have been finding a way to continue to enjoy his life. So perhaps there's, uh, there's lots to think about there. The aging process, the spiritual path, meditation, our, uh, our Buddhist notions, or our religious notions, whatever they might be, our social notions. You know, it's all tied together. And just once again, the uh, aging is, is, is no fun. It's no fun on the body. It's hard on the knees, hard on the teeth. 
we lose our hair or our, you know we get thinner and and we we look at pictures of ourselves that were recently taken and we go who's that who's that old guy and it is kind of a horror to you know look in the mirror in the bathroom once as, as soon as you've woken up in the morning and yeah there's all that stuff all that all that aging all that aging stuff but but the mind, oh my gosh, for the mind, for the mind, all the things that you've come to learn, all the things that you've come to know, and 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 to understand, to know the, the preciousness of all that, and to know that there's still some time, you still have some time left to continue or perhaps redirect where you're going with your life and why you're doing so and who you might uh, be out to benefit as you do so is really quite precious, a quite precious doorway. So this is Mark Winwood, and you're listening to The Elegant Mind. The Elegant Mind. And let me tell you, I, I, uh, it was about a couple of months ago where, where I was working with the folks at the radio station, 104.9, and we were uh, talking about the title for what my program was going to be, and we threw a whole lot of things around, and I settled on The Elegant Mind, and I just want you to understand that I don't call this program The Elegant Mind because my mind is particularly elegant. My mind is not particularly elegant most of the time. I have moments, as we all do, and we uh, very fortunately live in this in this such a beautiful place where you know we're surrounded by this environment and and perhaps elegance the elegance of our mind sprouts and blossoms just like all the uh, all the life around us here but my mind is not actively elegant however my mind and your mind and every mind every Every sentient mind has deep within it complete and pure and perfect elegance, pure beauty, pure gentleness, pure kindness, pure elegance. So we call this program The Elegant Mind to recognize that, to understand that, and perhaps to week to week to week meet people and discuss ideas and teachings and notions and perspectives and practices and so on to help the elegance of our mind uh, more easily blossom, to more easily emerge and arise, whatever we're doing, wherever we are, whether we're sitting on a meditation cushion, taking a shower, sitting at our desk at work, walking through the woods, driving in a traffic jam, or whatever, whatever, wherever we go, the mind comes with us. And wherever the mind goes, its, its internal elegance comes along with it. And there's no reason why any situation, any situation, be it happy or sad or, or, or even frightening, or, or disturbing, or whatever it might be. There's no reason why anything that is occurring outside should hinder or retard the ability for the elegance of our mind to emerge and blossom. And that's what this program is all about, to hopefully communicate ideas 
and, and notions, ideas and notions, principles and potions, perhaps intellectual, emotional, social potions to enable the elegance of our minds to emerge more naturally, more frequently, more intensely. And so that's why we're here, The Elegant Mind. This is Mark Winwood on Valley 104.9 FM, serving the beautiful Lower Snoqualmie Valley, including the communities of Carnation, Redmond Ridge, and Duval. I live in Duval. What I'd like to do now is actually share some music with you. I've thought that talking for one hour, hearing me talk for one hour, uh, is kind of hard. <laughs> it's hard for me to uh, listen to myself talk for an hour, and I imagine it must be equally, if not more so, difficult for you to have to listen to me. So I'd like to, to uh, share some music with you. The introductory music on this program and the outgoing music on this program is uh, composed and, and played by a, a dear friend of mine. His name is Bobby Vega, V-E-G-A, and Bobby is a San Francisco Bay Area musician. He's a bass player, electric bass player. He is, uh, he's world-renowned, and uh, his career is, uh, is quite remarkable. The people that he's played with and, and continues to this day to be invited to play with various ensembles and, and so on. So I'm going to play a, uh, a song. It's not very long. It's about three, three minutes. It's a solo composition. It's called Because, and I'd like to uh, share that with you, and then we will be back. Uh, I think we'll have a promotional message after the song is finished playing, and then we'll be back. I want to talk about some of the misconceptions about Buddhist practice, and we'll see where we go. We'll see where we go from there. This is The Elegant Mind, and this is an organic an organically created radio program and sometimes I sit down and I know what I'm going to talk about and sometimes I really don't and hopefully the uh, the organic nature of that will will uh, bring about some some creativity and some some meaning and some benefits so this is Mark Winwood I'm honored and pleased to bring The Elegant Mind to you on weekend mornings and now also available on podcast. If you would like to ask any questions or submit ideas, opinions, or perhaps even be interviewed on this program, please send me an email to theelegantmind at valley1049.org. That's theelegantmind at valley1049.org. So I will turn you over now to Bobby Vega and because.
Well, okay, welcome back. This is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind here on Valley 104.9, serving Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge. I would like to just uh, let you know, if you don't already know, that we will, we being the Chenrisic Project, the name of the group that I founded that shares the Tibetan mind sciences, Buddhist ideas, notions, practices, and so on, not to make more Buddhists, not to have people switch over from one belief system to another, but uh, Buddhism is a, uh, it's like a mind vitamin. Buddhist ideas, Buddhist notions, Buddhist practices uh, are a pathway to mental health, regardless of, of religion, dogmatic belief, lack of religion, makes spiritual practices makes no difference. The Buddhist ideas, the Buddhist notions are clarifying. They are empowering. They are like vitamins, vitamins in your, in your mind that make you stronger, more confident, uh, clearer, less harmful, create a, uh, or help create a sense of well-being. And so we are going to the Chenrisic Project. We are going to be sponsoring, holding a film festival in Duval at the Visitor Center on Main Street on Saturday, June 9th. That's coming up really soon. Saturday, June 9th from 1 p.m. to it'll end about 9.15 in the evening. We're going to be showing four films providing interested and or curious local audiences with an opportunity to discover for themselves these ideas and, and notions that communicate the beauty of the Tibetan culture, the Tibetan Buddhist culture, spirituality, and sensibilities. These are ideas and methods that many people find meaningful and enriching, regardless of philosophies, personal philosophies, or religion. This is a free event. This is a gift that we are sharing with the community. There's no charge to, to view any of the films, one of the films, all of the films, and, and there'll be free popcorn as well. So how could you resist that? We're going to start the films at 1 p.m. with the biography of the 14th Dalai Lama, and certainly he is a, uh, he's the icon. He is the, the, the living embodiment of the ideas and notions that these films portray. So that will be at 1 p.m. At 2.15, we're going to be showing a film called Unmistaken Child, which is a real-life documentary, true-life documentary, of a Tibetan Buddhist monk's search for the reincarnation of his beloved master. Very touching, touching film. We'll, at 4.30 p.m. on Saturday the 9th at the Visitor Center in Duval, we'll be sharing the Tibetan Book of the Dead, narrated by Leonard Cohen, which is a film that provides a remarkably clear explanation of the dying process during and after the same process that we're all going to encounter according to the classic Tibetan teachings. Very interesting. There's usually a, a uh, an active conversation that follows the screening of that film to Western audiences. Then we'll take a dinner break and reconvene at 7 o'clock Saturday, June 9th.
for our final film of the day, which is called Saint Misbehaven, which is the uh, the Wavy Gravy movie, a film that provides an entertaining and uh, really quite inspirational look at the extraordinary life of Wavy Gravy, Hugh Romney, the poet, clown, activist, the host of the Woodstock Festival in Bethel, New York in 1969, and a, a truly a modern-day Western bodhisattva. So there'll be lots of, uh, there'll be ample discussion time between the screenings, so come on down, expose yourself to these thought-provoking films, bring a friend, and uh, we'd love to see you. If you have any questions about the festival, please, once again, send me an email. Again, I'm Mark Winwood, but send the email to theelegantmind at valley1049.org, and I will get right back to you on that. So hope to see you. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I mentioned before the uh, our musical break that we would discuss a little bit of the misconceptions about Buddhism. And boy, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of misconceptions, Western misconceptions about, about Buddhism. But uh, I'd like to share some of the major ones. I'm not going to go into great depth. Just we'll mention them and, and set you straight <laughs> in terms of what you might be thinking or believing about Buddhist culture practices and really the first is that you know all buddhists meditate that buddhism is a it's about meditation it's about um you know the the monastic the monastic life and i remember years ago in florida i was invited by one of my students to come to her home she was a a practicing catholic roman catholic and she invited me to come to her home t- for dinner. And uh, also at the dinner it was going to be her priest. I think he actually might have been a, 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 a diocesan bishop. I'm not sure. But he was going to be there. And unknown to me at the time, uh, previous to the, uh, to the evening of the, of the dinner, uh, this was being set up by her to be a debate between her priest and her Buddhist teacher. <laughs> so, so I, I, and everything went great. The evening was wonderful and, and we, became, we became friends and I actually did some teachings later at his, at his church for people who were interested to hear some of the Buddhist ideas. But it was set up to be a uh, kind of a debate. And I remember ringing the doorbell and her husband, who I'd never met, came to the door and opened it. And he looked at me and uh, as though like, well, what do you want, buddy? And I introduced myself and, and he said, oh, come on in. And after maybe five seconds, he just blurted out. He said, you know, you don't look like a Buddhist. <laughs> so whatever, whatever that means, you don't look like a Buddhist. So, so he obviously had some some conceptions about what Buddhists look like or how they present themselves or how they walk, whatever it might be. I don't know. But one of the one of the things that people think is that all Buddhists meditate, that meditation is what Buddhism is all about. And in fact, meditation is kind of a zoning out, you know, that that you sit on a cushion, you remove yourself from everyday life, 
either for short or long periods of time. And you sit on a cushion and you're very balanced and you have a little smile on your face and a happy kind of contented look. And you just sit there and you zone out. And this is what you do if you're a Buddhist. This is your, this is your, you know, like if you're a golfer, you spend your time at the driving range. And if you're a Buddhist, you spend your time on the cushion. And, and yeah, meditation is a practice. It is part of the, of the path. However, through history, the great majority of Buddhists never meditated. They've not meditated. Meditation has traditionally been considered a monastic practice and really then as a specialty only of certain monks. Now, in the 20th century and here in the West, meditation has begun to be widely practiced by lay people. But I will, and it's very beneficial. Meditation is a, is a wonderful aspect of the Buddhist practice. Meditation is what takes what you have learned and brings it more deeply into your mind, into your experience, into your everyday, your everyday activities. I like to say metaphorically that, that if our brain was a computer, if we see our brain as a computer, what meditation does is it brings the Buddhist practices and perspectives into our operating system very, very deeply into all of our activities and all of our intentions so that whatever we do is done through the lens or with the influence or with the support of the Buddhist notions. Meditation brings everything in very deeply. There are folks who want to be involved in a meditation practice because they think that it's going to calm them down. And yeah, it, it might. Or it's going to lower their blood pressure. Or it's going to give them that holy look on their face, that sweet holy look on their face. And yeah, it might do all of those things, perhaps, perhaps not. But in Buddhist practice, meditation, in the Tibetan mind sciences, meditation is the, is the process by which we bring what we have come to learn, understand, and through investigation and analysis, accept and bring that into our mind, deeply into our mind. This is what meditation is. This is what meditation does. And that is why we do it. And there are many, many people who are engaged in Buddhist practice who try to live their life by the Buddhist guidelines of morality and patience and kindness and uh, equanimity and wisdom, who don't meditate. And that's completely fine. It's completely fine. There's no rule that says Buddhists must meditate. So it's one of the misconceptions that people have. That, And it, interestingly, it's one of the things that keeps people away from Buddhist practice because uh, through various times in their life, they've, perhaps you, have tried to meditate and you felt you didn't succeed, that it was too difficult or too boring uh, or just impossible. You know, that monkey mind thing was going on and, and you found that you couldn't sit comfortably or s with any kind of stability for more than a few seconds before 
you got the itch. You needed to move. You needed to think about something else or go somewhere else or do something else. So there's this this sense of frustration that people have cultivated with meditation. And then thinking that meditation is a must-do practice as part of the Buddhist path, they say, well, that path isn't for me because I just can't meditate. So remove that obstacle. If that is you, if you have kept away from these ideas, these, these perspectives, because you can't meditate and you have to meditate in order to participate, drop that. Drop that right away because that is not the case. That is not the case. You may find that you will want to meditate having engaged and having experienced some of these ideas and practices. And that's the way it works. That's the best way for it to work. So if that's you, keep that in mind and and go from there. Additionally, there is another Buddhists are this, besides meditators, that Buddhists are vegetarians, that a Buddhist must be a vegetarian. And, well, no, no. In fact, early on, the Buddhist monks and nuns, you know, they originally, and well, they still do in some parts of Asia, they would go out and they would have the townspeople give them their food offer them their food and uh you know one of the one of the ideas that we have about that is well you know the monks were beggars and they were they were going through the town each morning and they were begging for their food and uh but no no they weren't begging for their food in fact what the what the monks and nuns were doing as they would participate in their morning rounds was by walking through the town, they were giving the people of the village, the town, the community, wherever they were, and still do, they were giving the people an opportunity to be generous, to start their day early in the morning with an act of generosity, because generosity opens the heart. Generosity opens the heart. So they weren't begging for food. They were offering the gift of an opportunity for the people in the village to be generous. This is why they did what they did. And in fact, often they would, after collecting alms, and you know, and we're talking about traditionally villages of people who were not very wealthy. So, you know, what would be put in the bowl of a monk might be a couple of grapes or or some incense or a little candle or some buttons or whatever it might have been um so but the idea is in terms of vegetarianism that the monks traditionally would eat whatever it was offered to them including meat if it was meat that was offered to them they would eat that and it's according to some sources, in fact, the Buddha, Siddhartha himself, died as a result of bad pork that he, I don't know if this is true or not, but he died as a result of eating bad pork that had been offered to him because you ate what you were offered. You ate what you were offered. So in the centuries after the Buddha's death, there, you know, vegetarianism did begin to be promoted in some Buddhist texts. And even today, 
depending on where you are, the different cultures. Some Buddhist monks and nuns are vegetarians, and some are not, and some are not. His Holiness the Dalai Lama is not a vegetarian. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you would think if anybody's going to be vegetarian, it's the Dalai Lama. No, he's not. He needs meat. He has been ordered by his doctors to eat meat occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally to eat meat. In fact, it was just a few years ago that the Dalai Lama did make a statement to all his followers that if it is possible to, to not eat meat, that that is the best path, to not eat meat. And interestingly, in the Himalayas, where it gets really, really cold in the wintertime, he also made the pronouncement that we shouldn't, people shouldn't wear furs. Shouldn't wear furs, because animals are butchered for their furs. And perhaps years ago, furs were necessary to keep warm. But in the 21st century, there's enough clothing that's available that's made from you know cotton or or wool the the animals aren't slaughtered that furs are not necessary anymore and it was after he made that pronouncement in various villages throughout the, the tibetan communities that there would be bonfires and people were throwing their furs their fur hats and their gloves and their socks and their jackets and their sweaters into the bonfire to renounce needing to wear animal skin in order to keep warm. Same is true of vegetarianism. And there's no rule that says one must be a vegetarian. I think what happens a lot in Buddhist practice is that people will come to vegetarianism just because they begin to consider the interdependence of all beings and the idea, you know, the, the Tibetan sciences, the Buddhist sciences say that uh, human beings do not have dominion over animals. We're all the same. We're all minds that are working within vehicles, and the vehicle may be a human vehicle, a human body. It may be a dog or a cricket or a grasshopper or a crab or a jellyfish or an eagle or a hummingbird. It's mind and body, and we're all the same in that regard. We're all the same in that regard, and therefore, just because we are in a human body, we have the right to eat animals? Really? How does that work? Um, so some people will come to vegetarianism as a result of Buddhist practice. Others will not. And there is no rule. There is no rule. Except perhaps the custom or the guideline that says if we are going to eat meat, if we are going to eat birds, if we are going to eat fish, that perhaps in advance of eating uh, those creatures, we thank them. We appreciate what it is that uh, we are eating and where it came from. And probably if that creature had its way, it would not be on our plate or on the prongs of our fork. Uh, so we thank them. We thank them. A, a sense of gratitude, an act of, uh, 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 an act of appreciation, a sense of gratitude. And, um, and we vow to use, or we don't vow, we promise to use that energy that the animal has forsaken for our benefit. Uh, we, 
will use that energy for virtuous activities and virtuous actions. And so if you're worried, if you're thinking about studying Buddhism, getting somewhat engaged in the Buddhist practices, learning about them, but you can't meditate and you like your hamburgers, that's okay, that's fine, that's absolutely fine. And don't let either one of those be a, a barrier to, uh, to joining the dance. So another misconception, I believe misconception, about Buddhist practices here is that you have to believe, you have to believe the stories, you have to believe in the, the deities, you have to believe in the culture, you have to believe in all these these uh, these ideas with unpronounceable long names. And I want to speak to that because it's um, really not true. Buddhism came from Asia, as you know, and Siddhartha was, and by the way, I just want to interrupt, Next weekend, our program is going to concern itself with the life of Siddhartha, the life of Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, the awakened one, his enlightenment and what that means, and, and, uh, and his death as well. And this is all going to happen next weekend because we are approaching the Tibetan holiday. It's called Sakadawa, which is the day on which Siddhartha's birth enlightenment and death are are celebrated and that day is coming i believe it's next friday and so our broadcast next weekend will concern itself with the story of siddhartha who was he who wasn't he what was he and what wasn't he what did he come to understand how did he come to teach it and it's a it's a really it's a very interesting story I hope you will you will join us and hear some of the some of the truths. Well, the supposed truths. We don't really know. He lived 2500 years ago. There were no cameras, no video. There were no books, there's no writings. Um, we just have the stories, the teachings, the stories of the Buddha. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that as well. So that'll be next weekend, the the life of Siddhartha. The life of Siddhartha, a.k.a. the Buddha. But, you know, when it comes to the teachings, and in particular, this program, The Elegant Mind, which talks about the Tibetan life and mind sciences for wholesome living. You know, it's not our job sitting here in Washington State or wherever it may be that you're listening to this broadcast if you're on the radio listening to the podcast or the live stream of this program, which comes to you at the same time that it's being broadcast, which is 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday mornings, live streamed at www.valley1049.org. So it's not our job to become Tibetans. And we have to figure out our way of working in these Buddhist teachings within our world and our time and our place and our culture. So we have to make certain discriminations concerning the teachings. And we have to identify as we encounter the teachings, well, which parts of these teachings are cultural supports and which parts are indispensable. 
And this is difficult. It's a difficult matter. It requires, it requires learning, listening and learning and discerning. And, you know, we're all in different places. And these teachings come from a long time back and a far, far away place. So we hear the stories. We hear the, the stories of certain monks being able to fly from mountaintop to mountaintop. And we hear that uh, Nagarjuna, one of, the, uh, one of the foremost brilliant minds who distilled the Buddha's teachings on wisdom and taught them, we hear that he lived for 600 years. Or the implications that some of the great Buddhist teachings might have come out of China, of all places. Not India, not Tibet, not Nepal, not the Himalayas, but somewhere in China. And, and, but yet, these are supposed to be the words of the Buddha. There's so many things that we encounter in these teachings. And I think it's so important to understand and take the responsibility that we all have to think about these stories in different ways, in our own ways. And, you know, my starting point in terms of practicing Dharma, learning, sharing Dharma, is that we, we need to cultivate some, some sense of, of confidence in the teachers, the teachings, the teachers, in order to develop the foundation of, of the possibility or the foundation of faith that there is something to these teachings, be they metaphorical, being they, they stories or proverbs or maxims or poems or chants or songs or whatever they are, that there's something underlying, underlying the visualizations, there's something underlying the words, there is an essence that has some wisdom and some truth to it. You know, we don't have a, a cultural faith in the Buddhist teachings in our background the way they do in Tibet. And so we need to be analytical. We're not brought up to believe instinctively from a very young age in these teachings. So we have to we have to analyze. We have to be analytical. We have to do the analysis and then we have to build our faith from that, from what comes through the analysis. And so we have to weave our way back and forth between experience and belief and and knowledge and faith. And it's back left, right, left, right, left, right. Experience, faith, experience, faith. We have to use the science, our science, which is not what people thought at the time where many people just would blindly believe these teachings because they were just part of a of a culture. So we don't tell people when I share these teachings, I don't tell anybody what they have to believe. I don't usually even tell them what I believe, which parts of the stories they need to believe. But what I do portray and what I say here is that there are important things that are included in these teachings and it's up to you to decide. It's up to you to decide and not to take things literally. You know, if, if, I were, if I were a Christian, the story of Noah's Ark, whether I'm a Buddhist or a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm still a fairly free thinker. So did Noah really put animals in that boat? Who believes that literally? But 
the story, that story includes some profound faith, some profound meaning about the nature of our relationship with the animals of the planet. And to consider that literally becomes a hindrance. It becomes a, a hindrance. And that's one of the things about the, the Buddhist teachings. And in fact, the Dalai Lama talks about, he says, he says that sometimes it can be harmful to have too much faith too much belief at the beginning because it blocks you from thinking about what you're hearing. That taking it seriously means being unafraid to think about what it really means. That's how we approach here in the West. That's how we approach these teachings. We think about what they really mean and to immediately reject things that we just don't understand that seem so impossible from a logical point of view, or to believe things because, well, the Buddha said it, or Siddhartha said it, or the Dalai Lama said it, or Nagarjuna said it, or, or any one of the lineage of teachers because they said it, therefore I believe it. No, that's not how we approach these teachings at all. The way these teachings and these ideas and these notions are approached is with an open mind and then they are considered, they're analyzed, they're investigated, they're thought about. We compare what we've heard and what we've learned to our, to our life experiences. And then if it passes that test, then we engage. Then we begin to practice. And that's how these teachings all work. So it's a wonderful path. It's a very, very interesting path. And I am so delighted and again honored to be able to share this with you on this program the elegant mind uh, as i'm speaking i'm looking at the clock and i'm coming to the end of our of our program this week so i will sign off and again this is mark winwood and this is the elegant mind tibetan life science for modern living tibetan mind science for modern living tibetan living science for modern living and I'm coming to you on Valley 104.9, the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State, and being podcast as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with the story of Siddhartha. Don't miss it. It's a good one. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.